belong in science travaganza. It is our wrap-up episode for our You Do Belong in Science series, but not to fear. This is not the end of Double Shelix. It's just the end of our Berkeley Student Tech Fund-funded special series with stickers. That's right. Um, also, I'm Kayla. Oh, and I'm Sally. <laughs> and this is Double Shelix Podcast. In case you were wondering what podcast It's the podcast all about inclusive science, women in STEM, and the grad school grind. Perfect. Yeah, and it can be about your story, too, because on today's episode... We have a lot of awesome stuff going on. So first, share some amazing listener stories from listeners who have written in, dealing with issues of LGBTQIA allyship, and also dealing with illness in graduate school. Um, We're also going to tell you what Kayla and I have learned while doing the You Do Belong in Science series. Um, We're going to tell you the inside scoop on who does not belong in science. Um, It's not you, don't worry, but there is one group of people that needs a GTFO of science. And finally, we are delighted, delighted to have John, our allyship correspondent, and he'll be sharing a few more topics about, well, I guess we'll just get there. Yeah, but I mean, spoiler alert, allyship in regard to sexual harassment, um, implicit bias, and increasing representation of underrepresented populations in STEM. Um and in case this is your first time tuning into the podcast at all, we you should listen to all of the You Do Belong in Science series because we've been talking for the last month about a whole range of topics about inclusion and equity and diversity in science and what that, what that looks like in a whole range of contexts. So it's a great series. Yeah, but I mean, you can finish this episode if you want. This yeah. is going to be fun. Like, it's we're not providing spoilers. Like, yeah. all right. Um, so our first listener story... The listener has sent in their recorded voice, so let's just listen to that, and then we'll weigh in. So, listener, take it away. I want to give a shout-out to my PI for talking often about how he values diverse backgrounds. One thing about being LGBTQ is that every time you move somewhere new, you're back in the closet. As a new grad student, it's hard to guess what your new PI will think, especially if your PI is an older white cis straight man. But my PI opened up about his childhood and how different the ideologies he grew up with are, giving me a window into how he too could feel like a fish out of water. In giving career and life advice, he has talked about the constraints previous students have faced and overcome, including those of LGBTQ students who have to decide where they feel comfortable living post-graduation. I've had a lot of older white cis straight male professors, and a lot of them have been good professors, but my PI is the first one that's understood what it is to be an ally. He's not perfect and neither am I, but he gets that taking up the mantle for equality in STEM doesn't just fall to minorities in STEM, and it's a big deal to listen to what people are saying and show your support. Thank you so much, listener, for sharing your story. And thank you for bringing up another um, group that we haven't discussed on the podcast so far, um, but allyship with LGBTQ plus community. And um, importantly, how your PI has been really important part of that. I think what your PI is doing is a great example of a couple of things. So for example, signaling allyship, talking with you about how your PI also feels in ways like they may or may not belong. Mm -hmm. And then making sure that your lab space or community space is a safe space. 
Yes, absolutely. Especially if you are a professor or a mentor that oversees students to be actively signaling that, I, yes, I value your presence in this community. Yes, I am aware of certain additional issues that you may face. And yes, you're welcome here. And yes, you belong. That yes, you are a place where they can go for support. And that if they do go to, to you for support, you have to like have ways to support them. And so it's on you to educate yourself about ways that you can help LGBTQ students. Okay, if a student came to you as a professor or as a TA or as a mentor and said, hey, I'm like really struggling in this class, you would know, okay, here's the tutoring center. Here's the resource center. Like here's the peer tutoring center. Here is like a list of five other students who got C's in my class and are now professors, right? Mm Mm-hmm. You should so, be able to have the same resources if someone comes to you and says, like, hey, I'm having this issue at the intersection of my identity as a lesbian and my identity as a scientist. You should be able to say, all right, here is the University Gay and Lesbian Resource Center. Here is the Berkeley, like, queer grads group. Here is the American Chemical Society, like, PDF document all about like resources for LGBTQ students in graduate school. Here is a conference that you can go to. You should prepare yourself with these resources. So some more of those resources. Um, we can post on our website, doublesheetlinks.com, the resources about our specific university, Berkeley, and I'm sure there's a ton more out there. So there are probably resources. Um, your university should have both resource centers and peer groups um, surrounding LGBTQ issues, which are places that students from those communities can go to get help and also places where allies can go to learn more and figure out how to help. Mm -hmm. Um, And everyone, especially if you are a supervisor or a professor, should be actively educating yourselves about how to best help these students because they face additional barriers to success. Uh, Social media can be a great way to connect with people who are of similar identities in similar fields, especially if you come from a small community where you don't, where there aren't that many other out queer people in your community, or, and especially if you don't feel safe being out to members of your lab, members of your department, um, or being out more publicly, like, you can still follow these people on social media, um, learn what they're talking about, like, message them privately. Um, at least for me, like, identifying other graduate students who are going through similar experiences at different schools and befriending them on Instagram and Twitter has been, really helped me through some of the, like, different questions that I'm facing or when I feel like, oh, no one at Berkeley has ever gone through this. I mean, someone has, but you feel like no one has. Mm-hmm. And so connecting with people on social media. Yeah, that's that's true. Especially if you're in a position of power, it's your responsibility to actively make known that you create a workplace that is welcoming to LGBTQ people and that will not tolerate discrimination against them and that you are a place where they can go for help, resources, and input. And we're going to link up some of those resources. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so take advantage of the opportunity to just learn more. Yeah. And be prepared. And if you're a professor, you owe it to your students, past and future, and present, to spend 15 minutes, make a list of resources, so that when a student comes to you with these kinds of issues, you can help them. Yeah, that's true. And, and shout out to your professor for... Your PI for being being that person. Yeah, but I think what they also said was that it was the first professor they'd ever had. Yeah. So, professors, get it together. It's <laughs> a good point. All right. Thank um, you for sharing this listener story. We welcome more conversation on this topic. 
I know we haven't covered everything. Please reach out to us on social media or send us an email. We're happy to continue the conversation and we're happy to bring further issues of LGBTQ representation and inclusivity into our podcast as much as possible because it's very important. So we go to another listener story? Sure. So our next listener story says, Dear Double Shelix, thank you so much for all that you do and this opportunity to share my experiences. Oh, yeah. Aww. Aww. <laughs> I want to share a bit about my experiences with chronic illness and how it affects my work. Like many people with chronic illnesses, I have good days and bad days. I worry that colleagues, professors, and mentors will question if I really should be in grad school, and sometimes I do too. What has helped me has been finding trusted friends and mentors who I can confide in and getting treatment for my condition to the extent that is possible. I encourage others in the same shoes to do the same, and that focusing on the things you can do in each day and making small progress is always much easier than focusing on the long term. Um, again, well, listener, yeah, thank, thank you, you for, for sharing. Thanks for sharing it. And definitely. I'm sorry that this is something that you have to navigate because graduate school is hard enough. Yeah. And doing it when you're not at your best is even harder. Yeah, and... Even more so, I'm not sure when this person's chronic illness began or was diagnosed. Right, right. But I think it, it can even be worse when it happened when it starts during graduate school or just a unique set of issues when it starts. Oh, like it's school. not something you've been handling for a long time, but it's a new thing. Well, becoming ill, whether you became ill in graduate school or it's something that you've been dealing with for a long time... I think the intersection of graduate school and illness, particularly, like, chronic illness, but also, like, acute illness or injury, uh, it's really hard. It is hard, and it takes it takes a lot of time. Um, I cannot relate to chronic illness, um, but I did have knee surgery during I remember. I feel bad because we were skiing together when it happened. <laughs> Um, so I cannot relate to this, and I don't mean to say that um, my experiences is in any way We're not comparing similar. experiences, we're, we're just not adding additional experiences. Adding my viewpoint, which is that um, uh, I think one of the most challenging part was just the time that it took, just because, like, I had to go to PT every, like, twice a week <laughs> for a while there, and I was, like, felt like I was constantly running there. Not running there, <laughs> like oh. <laughs> limping there anyway. So, uh, and and then just the the physical hassle in the lab was also surprising. Actually, it was just this just this year that I could like get back down to the bottom incubator. <laughs> oh, it's like and, uh, and I guess an important point that the listener raises is saying how you know they confide in trusted friends and mentors, and I think this is. Two points that all of our listeners, regardless of illness status, can take heed. One is, if you are that trusted friend and mentor, help that person. Be there for that person. Listen yeah. to that person. I mean, but, this goes back to just what we were talking about previously, too, is, like, being prepared for when students yes. approach you with these issues, because they will. They will, yeah. They will. <laughs> and it's also... You might be a friend, but you're not, like, the most trusted friend who's in the inner circle and in the know, right? Mm -hmm. So 
when you see someone who has maybe not been doing as much work as they should be doing, quote unquote, should be doing, that's a whole other episode, how much work should grad students be doing, but like, fuck that. (laughs) Um, Like what they should be doing, or like they've been, like they're just slow and lethargic around the lab. Like, you don't need to know all the details in order for you to have compassion. Mm -hmm. Because everyone is dealing with some shit in their lives. And when that shit is chronic illness, especially the so-called invisible illnesses where it looks like they're fine, they're just, like, miserable on the inside, it's really, really hard. Yeah. So, have compassion. Yeah. It's true. And and that's the thing, is that everyone is dealing with something. Yeah. It's just surprising when you, when you do end up having those conversations and you realize what other people are dealing with during that time it's kind of yeah exactly and and you don't know it so i think um actually this is important in two ways not just to realize that if you are the person dealing with something that you're not alone um two i think that the sort of extreme outcome of this could be that your mentors or advisors or your co-workers your colleagues are going to assume that you're not going to work as hard or not Mm. be as dedicated. um, Which is also an unfair assumption because then you should be concerned about that for pretty much everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Because everyone is dealing with something. And and that is part of being a scientist is that you are still a human and during your science... (laughs) So there will be things that take away time and mental space and physical energy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet, yeah, we can still get a lot, um, do a lot of cool things. So yeah, if you're thinking like, oh, like so and so on my project, like they're not working as hard. Like, ugh. Like I heard it was because of this other issue, but like, ugh. You know what? They are working hard and they are giving themselves, they're giving a lot of themselves to be in this project and it is a big sacrifice for them physically and mentally to be working in the lab and they really do want to be doing what they're doing. So reserve that judgment. I don't know. Judge something else. Like we're not here for that kind of judgment. We're not here for that kind of vitriol. Like you do belong in science when you're healthy. You do belong in science when you're sick. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, totally. And don't you think, especially for people who are working on biomedical challenges... It like, definitely adds a new perspective. That yeah. Like, the whole point valuable. of the reason that you join this kind of work is because you want to help people. And so the least you can do is have compassion for the people who are suffering that are actually in your own community, in your own orbit. And more broadly in our culture, many chronic illnesses are largely understudied. And... Maybe it's because science hasn't been welcoming to those perspectives. That's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. So people with chronic illness, you do belong in science. Yeah. On that note, this is the You Do Belong in Science Travaganza. And Kayla and I just want to take a few moments to think about the things that we have learned while doing this series. Um, I think before we even start, like the zeroth thing we learned is that We love you guys, our listeners. Um, Your support has been phenomenal and amazing. So true. Like, I keep seeing these You Do Belong in Science stickers, and, like, strangers have them, and it's really exciting. 
Um, and also, when you all send us notes or emails, yeah, that totally shout makes out our day. Friends that I haven't talked to since elementary school, that I haven't talked to since high school, and that I haven't talked to since college, have all have emailed me and been like, "Oh my gosh, not to be creepy, but your podcast is amazing." It's not creepy to give someone a compliment. Like, keep these coming, people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put them on the iTunes store. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. No, but it's like really touching how much you guys are. Yeah. are relating to this content, and I think, oh, I love you guys. And you so can true. get your sticker. And my mom was like, do we have to fill out the form on your website to give to get stickers? And I was like, no, mom, I'll send them to you. But for everyone else, you have to fill out the form on the website because I don't know your address because I haven't lived there since I was born. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um. So, Kayla, what, what else have we learned? Sure. I yeah. Mean, like, so, our goal is for our guests to shine. Right. And so we very carefully say, like, we're going to have a conversation. Um, but there's any parts that you don't like or don't want or are just not ready to put into the public realm, that's mm-hmm. totally fine. We'll take it out. Right. Um, this is an NPR. <laughs> and um, so, and, and that happens. And it, sometimes it's like, take out a couple minutes. And sometimes it's like, let's take out a lot. And that's totally fine. Um Right. And, but what we learned from that is that a lot of times, uh, guests will share some parts of themselves that are more personal or, um, shouldn't have to be taboo, but they are. Right. So, and I think that just underscores that there's a lot of work to be done in this space. Yeah. So when we send, so like Kayla mentioned, we send the listeners a draft of our episode and we say like, let us know what to cut. Um, and there's two categories of things that are most that guests ask to be cut. One is integral aspects of their identities mm-hmm. and how that interacts with their identity as a scientist that they're not comfortable sharing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're not going to tell you. Obviously, we will happily cut them. Mm-hmm. But the fact that people aren't ha- comfortable having these conversations is, is yeah. And also, before we hit record on the episode when we're sitting with a guest and after we stop recording, it's when the deepest... That's, like, when the best audio happens. Yeah, it's true. Because when they're just talking to Kayla and me, mm-hmm. they will share the inside story. They will share what they were really feeling at the time. They will share more of themselves than what yeah. they share publicly, which, I mean, obviously. But that is just to say that everyone around you has amazing stories and experiences. And if you can ask them about yeah. their experiences and their struggles and if they're willing to share, you can really learn a lot. Yeah. Um, but that's also to say that there's so many taboos still out there, and we are working to crush them one at a time. <laughs> so bring your taboos to this podcast, and we will happily discuss discuss them. But then you can edit out whatever we don't want to share. Anyway. The other thing that guests ask us to cut is super, super specific things that, like, only they would know are wrong about something that they said about their research or something that they said about like, one of their experiences, like, literally, they're the only person in the world that will know that they accidentally misspoke, Mm. but it is meaningful to them, it is important to them that they have these conversations and that they get this right, because they really do care about their work, and they really do care about the issues that we're talking about. Yeah, So, like, these little miss, like, we, Kayla and me, like, we talk wrong all the time on this podcast, I'm sure you guys know. Um, but these little things that they miss say, like, we will fix it for the guests or cut that part out because, like, it is such a part of their identity. And that just makes me so happy to see, like, yeah. these women who are doing such amazing work and who take such 
pride in what they're doing. It's just really beautiful. Yeah. I fucking love it. It's, I love it. Yeah, it's really awesome. It's really true. All right. We printed a bunch of stickers that say you do belong in science and we're going to give them out to everyone. And the reason that we chose you do belong in science as a theme is because we felt that it encompassed a number of topics that we are really passionate about. One, obviously, inclusion of underrepresented groups in STEM. Another one is inclusion of the public in science. Even if you're not a scientist, we feel strongly that you should be able to feel empowered by what you read on the news or what you learn about in school. You should feel empowered by what you learn in science and you should feel comfortable asking deeper questions Mm -hmm. and you should feel like this science that's being done by all these amazing researchers is science that is valuable to your life. Yeah, and not just some other out there. Right, so... Yeah. Like, people, you know, so I would ask, people would ask me, like, oh, like, you do belong in science. And then some listeners or people that don't listen to the podcast, but that I just know, would be like, well, do you really think science, like, everyone does belong in science, you know? Like, you know, maybe, like, not everyone should get a biology degree. Like, we do need people who are, like, you know, insert trades profession here or whatever. And I was, I would say what I just said about, like, science engagement in the public and we should all feel empowered to, like have a deeper anyway I would say all that and they're like yeah but is there anyone that doesn't belong in science yes there is a group of people that do not belong in science and that is sexual harassers sexual harassers get the heck out of science let's discuss yeah so I think uh the best way to do this is to just go straight to okay Clancy's okay sexual harassment hurts science. Sexual harassment hurts scientists. So when people talk about sexual harassment hurting scientists, I think what they're thinking is that sexual harassment hurts the career of the poor harasser. Oh, look, poor harasser. He's kicked out of academia even though he had tenure. That's not who I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm talking about all the victims of that person's harassment Mm -hmm. who are forced out of science, forced or forced into a different part of science, or forced into a different place to do their science successfully. I think I could go off on this for like an entire podcast, but I don't need to because Professor Kate Clancy at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign is an expert in the study of sexual harassment in science. And in February, she testified for Congress all about sexual sexual misconduct in the sciences. Um, I encourage you to watch the video of her testimony. It's only five minutes long. I encourage you to read the transcript of her testimony, both of which we can link on the show notes. But basically, sexual harassers do not belong in science, um, and they need to go. So, I mean, all the points I'm saying are basically summarized from Kate's testimony and her extensive scholarship on this. If you are a member of any group, does your group have, like, a conference organizer or a like some sort of honor society or some sort of like professional society. Like, does your group have a no sexual harassers allowed policy? Cause you could just empower yourself to make that policy in your group if possible. Mm, yeah. Um, so we'll link to Kate Clancy's extensive scholarship. She also hosts a podcast called the period podcast, which I'm obsessed with. Um, but I highly recommend that if you're a sexual harasser, you should leave science forever. Um, because mentoring students is a privilege Getting government funding is a privilege, and you have abused this privilege by abusing your power. I mean, we can have a whole episode on this, like, sexual harassers, just, just go. Um, 
Yeah, and I think... <laughs> Sorry, this has been a long Maybe. rant. I think um, on that note, we should just transition into John's segment. Yes! We're going to talk with John about this, so... Yeah, John has an excellent segment all about how to not be a bystander when you witness sexual harassment and sexual misconduct. Um, also, I feel like it's really important to say that if you are a victim of sexual harassment, sexual violence, or sexual misconduct in the workplace, um, we support you and we are here for you. And it really sucks that this has happened to you. You 100% belong in science. You have a bright and promising career. And we hope that you can find resources and support. Um, we are always here for you. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Don't let the haters stop you from doing your thing, even though they try really hard and even though they're really good at trying really hard. It's you who belongs and it's them who needs to get the fuck out. All right. Okay. <laughs> so John's going to kick us off talking about sexual harassment. Um, then John's going to go on and we're going to talk with John about judging the research versus judging the researcher, which I think is a topic that came up on Suhair's episode. Yeah. Um, so just more into that. And I love what John says in this segment. I mean, you'll hear it in a minute, but I love it. I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> which is that when it comes to these, these sort of topics, as a community of scientists, we need to feel more comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. And, like, these conversations are uncomfortable. They are. But yeah. we are scientists and what we do is hard. And so it just takes practice. So take, you know, it takes practice to, like, have these conversations. It takes practice to get better. And at first it's going to be uncomfortable, but that's okay. It's okay that these conversations are not comfortable. Yeah. And I guess, actually, this takes us back a little bit to what we have learned. Because... One thing that I have learned, too, is just by doing, by being um, a part of these conversations, it's actually spawned more conversations mm -hmm. off the podcast. Oh, um, yeah. With uh, colleagues about a variety of these issues. And um, so, one, that is something that we've been practicing. <laughs> oh, definitely. Um, but also, what I have realized is when I'm talking to people about their... Um, stories is that uh, more people feel like they don't belong than we realize and it's fun because because i think when you walk into a room um you don't it, you don't assume that everyone else is feeling that way mm -hmm. but they are oh yeah in fact i would say that i have yet to talk to a person that says yeah i belong here like duh <laughs> um when you are feeling this way i think that's that's normal, unfortunately, yeah, but it is. Um, so you're not alone. Get more comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. Is a great point. And realize that you're not the only one that feels this way. Absolutely. Shall we take it with John? With John. I'm stoked to have John because, I mean, you guys heard him in a previous episode where he talked all about emotional labor in the workplace, um, which, whew. Just go back and listen. That's all yeah. I have to say about oh, that. Delighted to welcome John back for some amazing new segments, which you guys, I love that John brings not only the knowledge, not only the fire, but also the peer-reviewed literature supporting yeah. these things so that when someone questions you and they're like, I don't know, I think that women really are worse than men, you can be like, here's a study why that's not true, and here's a study why that's really hateful. Um, and also the actions that you can take. Because I think 
a lot of us kind of know that these issues are happening, but it's hard to go from this issue is happening to like, here's what I'm doing about it. So John, it's overwhelming because it's systemic. And so you're like, oh, but I'm one person. You're not just one person. What can I do about this? John, take it away. Welcome back, our allyship correspondent, John Muncy. He's here today to talk to us about what actions allies can take to support women and other students who are feeling harassed in the workplace. Um, John, I think this is an issue that is talked a lot about right now, but we want to know from you, like, what can allies do and why is this a problem? Yeah, so I, I think this is a really important topic to talk about, especially, I think it's no secret that our society as a whole is dealing with this issue of assault and harassment in pretty much every arena of life right now. So I think it's important for us to focus on what are actions we can really take to help ensure that this isn't happening in our own communities. Because that's really how we're going to get rid of these issues is taking it upon ourselves to do something about it. One resource that I wanted to highlight, maybe we can include a link to this on the Double Street Leaks website or whatever, but um, there's a series of videos that was recently produced by Seagal Avon and David Schwimmer, who you might remember from friends as playing Ross, but they basically created like a six part video series highlighting what sexual harassment in the workplace looks like. And their whole premise was that we often attribute not taking action to there being a lot of gray area here. And their whole point was there shouldn't be gray area. Let's show what sexual harassment looks like and let's provide resources for how to deal with it. And the New York Times took one of these videos and had a bunch of experts annotate the script and showing how, you know, in this instance where they were illuminating what sexual harassment looks like, they provided comments on how if this were happening to you, here are the steps you should take to kind of shoot this down or help intervene. Cool. So I think that's something worth checking out. Yeah, we could definitely link to that. And on the topic of why this is important, David Schwimmer had an awesome quote that, like, I really could not say better. And he said, look, men have a lot to learn but you're not going to learn anything without dialogue. And men commit the vast majority of rapes, sexual assault, and harassment. So men have a special responsibility to do something and get involved. And I think that ties back perfectly to our conversation around emotional labor, where this is really something that we as men need to take more responsibility on ourselves to do the labor to help solve this issue. So how do we do that? Yeah, tell us. (laughs) Number one is to believe women and men who are reporting these as issues. I think the first step is to always believe someone who is feeling uncomfortable or harassed or assaulted. I think the second thing is to call out jokes and behaviors that you see that you know are not cool. I think this is probably the, I don't know, I would maybe say the hardest thing, especially in our workplace environments where we feel sometimes a lot of pressure to not start confrontation, you know, often we say, oh, maybe they didn't mean it like that, or maybe they were just making a joke. I think this is an area where we really need to step up and be willing to call out behaviors that are not okay. That's something that I personally have tried to focus a lot on because I know just my general personality is to avoid conflict. So I have to kind of work extra hard to overcome that. And then plan in advance and think about what are your strategies going to be if you need to step in to downplay a kind of sketchy situation. And and there are lots of different strategies out there. So one is to just distract, like cause a distraction. Maybe that gives the person a chance to get out of this uncomfortable situation. Another one is to appeal to humor or to make a joke. Again, you don't want to make a joke that's going to kind of further the situation, but maybe takes the focus off of 
the individual who is probably feeling uncomfortable in this situation and maybe puts the focus on you or kind of shines the spotlight back on the person who was doing the harassing or making someone feel uncomfortable. Can I jump in and say that one of the things that's, I think, super important about taking that strategy is that when you do that, you take control of where the conversation goes next and you're like, okay, let's, you know, back off this and let's move over here. Um, because sometimes if you just are like, oh, that's not cool, then no one really knows where to go next. <laughs> um, it can be really helpful to actually just sit down and write some responses that you want to use. Right. And practice, and, and practice saying, like, even if they're not a repeat offender, I think if you're comfortable in the situation, it's totally okay, and everyone would love you if you just said, sorry, I don't think that joke is appropriate for this sort of setting. Anyway, what did you do last weekend? Mm-hmm. Yes, humor can be a tool if that's what makes you the most comfortable in confronting the situation, but, like, it's okay to just say, like, calmly but sternly, that wasn't very appropriate. Let's move on. Yeah. This is something, like, on our podcast, we have identified this. Um, in our past episodes, we have some segments called Better Talk Next Time, which is all about the issue you described, which is that in the moment, it can be very hard to know what to say. So I would say men and really everyone like expect that in the future you are going to be witness to one of your colleagues making a sexist, racist, or otherwise inappropriate joke and practice saying that's not appropriate for right now. Let's move on. It's just another area where it's important to think about what are the actions I can take and then really challenge myself to take those actions. Oh, absolutely. The thing about calling out and appealing to jokes that I want to touch on, and it's just an, another, or sort of like a different angle of why it's important to say, hey, that's not appropriate, and move on, um, is that when you don't do that, then the person who's feeling uncomfortable not only feels uncomfortable about what just happens, but then is like, wait a minute, I'm in lab meeting with 15 other people who I, I feel relatively close with, and none of them were willing to stand up and call that out for me, and it's as simple as, like you said, just saying, hey, that's not cool right now. Let's not do that and move on with the meeting. Not only does now the person know that what they did was inappropriate, but the person who is feeling uncomfortable now feels like someone in the room has their back. And I think that's actually maybe more important um, or the most important thing. And it's also going to encourage everyone else in the room who was also recognizing that that was uncomfortable to then be the ones to call it out the next time they see it. Don't be shy about the power of a well-worded ex post facto email. Um, I was once in a situation where a professor at a seminar said some very inappropriate comments. I Afterward, I went to another professor and I was like, hey, like, I didn't think what professor so-and-so was, like, very appropriate for the setting. And she was like, oh, yeah, like, I already emailed him. Like, he knows and is not going to do it again. Mm-hmm. It was great that she, who was a senior professor, was able to do those steps because me as a junior mini non-important person doesn't have the power to, like, email a tenured faculty that I've never met and be like, that was weird, bro. Yeah. Cool. Any last thoughts on allyship as it relates to preventing sexual harassment in the workplace? I don't think so. I think, again, my main takeaways here are just, like, listen to the people around you and believe them and take the little actions that you can to just point out the things that aren't cool. Cool. Awesome. Great. All right. Should we move on? Yeah. We're delighted to welcome John back as our allyship correspondent to talk today a little bit about the topic of criticism of research as it relates to the research versus as it relates to the researcher. So, John, we are very passionate about this topic and very excited to have you here. Tell us more about research versus the researcher. 
this is a really important issue. And it's one of these things that is magnified because in science in general, for all of us, there's so much critique out there and it's, it's just part of what we do, right? We are constantly trying to improve our knowledge of whatever field we're working in. And that comes from being critical of data and being critical of the, the experiments we've done and always trying to improve upon the work that's out there. And that is all very useful and a huge, hugely important part of the process of research. But it quickly snowballs into very damaging personal criticism that can be rooted in a person's identity. And so I think this is an area where we have to like really focus on using our scientific lens of objectivity and really make sure that when we're evaluating someone's work, we are evaluating their work and not them. Part of this is like just letting the data speak for itself in my training so far. Uh, it's really been impressed on me to look at the data, think about the data, um, think about as many interpretations for that data as you can, and then pair that with what you already know to kind of come up with the best conclusion or handfuls of conclusions. Um, and I think it's really important to do that anytime we're dealing with not only our own work, but someone else's work. And then removing any assumptions about, okay, this person is a junior faculty and therefore I don't believe their data because they don't have the experience to have done those experiments right. And then all of a sudden our questioning becomes overly critical and ultimately unhelpful to that researcher. I think we're kind of circling here around the topic of implicit bias. So in your mm -hmm. example of, oh, a junior faculty like might not know you know, how to do experiments as good as me, a senior faculty, right? I think there's many faculty who would openly say that, right? They would say, like, mm -hmm. a junior faculty is less experienced. They don't know anything about diabetes because compared to me, that they would never openly say, like, oh, you're a woman, so you're not going to be as good as me. And they would never say, like, you're Latina, so you're never going to be as good as me. That's not to say that those biases don't exist within the sure. mind of the person making those comments. So I totally see what you mean. Like, we value data so much, like, why are we allowing these bias to come in when we evaluate others' data? Yeah, I think that's a really important um, distinction between like explicit and implicit biases and understanding that. So an explicit bias would be if I were to like sit down here and tell you, Sally, I think junior faculty are garbage and don't know anything. And any time I see a junior faculty talk, I'm going to be way more critical of what they're saying than a more senior faculty. Whereas an implicit bias is something that has developed over time that I may not even be aware that I have. And again, sticking with this topic of junior and senior faculty, I think it's easy to understand how we might develop this implicit bias given um, how sort of hierarchical in nature academia can be sometimes. And so it's not that I might tell you or even know that I kind of am less trustworthy of, of junior faculty, but when I raise my hand to ask a question, I might unknowingly ask something that is not something I would ask of a senior faculty. And so I think it's important when you, anytime you're about to ask a question or deliver some sort of criticism, really like take the extra 10 seconds to say to yourself, if this was someone else, would I be asking the same question? Yeah. And I think, you you know, junior and senior faculty is in a good example here, but it also applies to obviously gender, race, um, as Suhair was saying, like country of origin of the researcher, um, country where the research was conducted, 
LGBTQ status of the researcher, like funding status of the researcher, institution of the researcher. I think all of this comes into our biases. And, and why is this important? Well, peer review. Yes! Yes! <laughs> Fuck! Everything that we do is to judge by our peers. And so if our peers think differently of us because of some bullshit reason, then we're screwed and we're not going to be able to get money or published. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, there's a flip side, too, in terms of evaluating the research, which is that not just what questions are you asking that you wouldn't otherwise ask, but in reverse, what questions are you not asking that should be asked? Like, Mm. are you overly trusting of a piece of data or a subset of research because of who said it or who published it? And that that's um, also a big concern <laughs> as we're in the midst of a reproducibility crisis, right? Yes. <laughs> John, as a peer, how can you check your biases and give fair evaluation to research? Yeah. I think another like really striking example of this that people may be familiar with are these studies where they take um, identical resumes or CVs and basically swap names that are maybe traditionally male names versus traditionally female names and um, a resume with a with a male name on it is dramatically more likely to be recommended for the job than someone with a female name. And this occurs even if the person reviewing the resume like openly states, I know that gender bias is an issue and I really think it's important that we take action to equalize these things. You, there still is this bias towards men over women and as you've already talked about, many other biases as well. Um, the exact studies that you described with the name swapping have been replicated with even more um, disheartening and biased results when, for example, using a name that people in the U.S. would assume that comes from a person from the African-American community or from the Latino community, um, these biases are absolutely reproduced in peer-reviewed literature. Yeah, I think believe, and I think also, again, it goes back to this idea we talked about earlier, which is that we just need to get more comfortable being uncomfortable. I think part of the reason we don't believe is we don't we don't like the idea that we're living in that world, but we're not going to fix it until we really accept that we are. And implicit biases are more challenging because they're implicit. <laughs> so right. you you at that point have to take time to examine yourself and say, okay, and am I really giving this a fair shot? And why am I not? <laughs> and I, I think I know I've totally caught myself doing this. And it's it takes effort to think about it and to not let that influence your work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like you are biased. You do the work. Right. Overcome it. Because right. your peers and the future of your field depend on it. Because right. your field will advance when the best people are doing the best science. But when the people who are evaluating that science at every level, whether it's to receive funding, to be published in a journal, to like choose who's going to work on the project, when that is biased at every level, we are selecting against the optimum candidates because we're selecting four people who are from the groups that are already doing that work, which, as we know, diverse teams have the best results. Ugh, bias sucks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hashtag bias sucks. <laughs> Yes, hashtag bestlikes. Thanks, Sean. Well, we're excited to have another discussion with our allyship correspondent, John. And in this segment, we're going to talk about the representation of women and people from underrepresented backgrounds in STEM. So, John, let's talk about actions. 
what can yeah, we do so, to promote inclusivity in STEM? So I think in terms of thinking of actions, I think the best way to think about this is to tie this straight back to the topic of this series, which is you do belong in science. And the actions we need to take are actions that are going to make all of us feel like we belong. Um, and so number one is to just go out of your way to nominate the rock star people you know, no matter who they are, for talks, for leadership roles, for promotions, for fellowships, for everything. Um, because I think what tends to happen is these like call for nominations go out and we get these emails and we're like, eh, I'm just a grad student. Like, what do I know? Um, I'm just going to leave it to someone else to nominate whoever. And what ends up happening is you get this like echo chamber of the same people getting nominated for the same awards over and over again. Um, and so I guarantee that like we all know people who are deserving of all kinds of awards and just by like nominating these people and throwing their names around and, and really shining the spotlight on the people, you know, deserve the spotlight. We can do so much to make so many different individuals feel like they do belong. Another one is to just like help facilitate interactions between people that are going to make people feel like they belong. And so we know, for instance, that there is a big pipeline problem um, in science as well as in basically just like business in general that at entry level positions. So let's call them grad students. We have pretty much equal proportions of men and women and citing specifically a study that was done in business across 130 different global companies. They found that in entry level positions were roughly were filled by 46% women, 54% men. Um, but the issue becomes as you start to climb that ladder, simply moving from entry level to management, um, men are 30% more likely to get promoted. And then the higher you go, by the time you get to uh, like C level management, you're now down to like 19% representation of women. Um, and this basically trickles down. So if, if someone is coming from a group that's underrepresented at the entry level position, it's only going to get worse as they move up the ladder. Um, and so I think, again, the more we can do to facilitate interactions between people at the top who do recognize this as an issue and who are taking action to help those at lower levels work their way up. And these people definitely are out there. And I think you guys are interviewing a lot of them, which is great. I think the more we can have those personal connections between people who are kind of starting out and starting to feel these like, wait a minute, do I really belong here? And people who are successful and are going to tell them, yes, for sure you belong here. Um, the more we're going to increase the chances that those people can succeed and thrive um, and be as successful and we're all going to benefit from their success. Absolutely. So, um, you mentioned that one of the things you can do is to nominate women or underrepresented minorities for leadership roles or fellowships, etc. Um, and it might be easy to say, um, well, are you getting this fellowship because you're a woman? So my question to you is, is, you know, what, is there an issue here that could arise or is arising? And yeah, what's your commentary on that? Yeah. So I think you've raised sort of like 
probably the most common counter argument uh, that gets presented when thinking about uh, like taking specific actions to promote um, like success of people coming from underrepresented groups. And it's an argument that I have discussed numerous times with numerous people over beers. And I think it's like sort of a philosophical from a philosophical standpoint, an argument worth considering. But but where I kind of always land on this is what what it comes down to is if we lived in, in, a, in an ideal world where everyone is promoted and their success is determined on their skills and their abilities, then, yes, maybe looking at a certain aspect of someone's identity and choosing to focus on that as a reason to promote them is probably not ideal and does not fall into an ideal meritocracy. But the fact is we live in like such a far world from that right now where people just like structurally do not have equal opportunities that we really have to take specific actions to level that playing field before we can even start to have this conversation or even like consider this argument, I think. And I would absolutely agree. And I would add on multiple things. One, you mentioned that like, if we have an ideal meritocracy where people are always valued for their merits, like starting from the entry level, I think we would need an ideal world where tiny little six month old babies are treated. Baby girls are treated the exact same way as tiny little six month old baby boys, which we do not have. Right. Like, Already at age six, both boys and girls are more likely to say that someone who's brilliantly intelligent is more likely to be a man than a woman. And that's six-year-olds, people. This is so sad. Also, even these kind of discussions that you describe over beers, like, let's just, let's just philosophically consider for a minute. Like, maybe, like, we shouldn't be giving NSF fellowships equally to women because, you know, like, men just are getting better grades and do do better research. I think that many of the people who participate in these conversations do it with good intentions. But what they do not realize is that hearing that those hearing those conversations, especially from someone that you might consider a friend, is extremely toxic to for anyone who comes from an underrepresented background or has barriers to their success. These conversations where it's like, let's just philosophically consider that maybe we do live in a meritocracy. It's like, no, you don't. And when companies are like, oh, the way we evaluate our employees is by doing this like intelligence test because you know, we are truly a meritocracy and we have this like coding exam slash science quiz slash intelligence thing because we want to get the coders who are really the best. It's like, no, coding interviews or like, like intelligence genius type question things that companies give to their employees. These absolutely do not measure one's merit or one's ability. They measure one's ability to succeed in those kinds of challenges. And for example, in coding interviews, that measures your ability to succeed in a coding interview. And who succeeds in coding interviews? People who go to top schools where they have clubs where they can go and practice coding interviews. So look, like you might be out there and you might be thinking like, oh, well, the reason that so-and-so is even in this program is because they're a woman or they're whatever. Just stop. The reason that so-and-so was nominated for this is because just no. Okay, your colleagues already feel enough imposter syndrome and... Oh, like we're going to have to edit this whole thing out. Yeah, no, <laughs> but... absolutely. And the the other part that's really sad to me is the number of times I've heard someone say to me, oh, I probably only won this because I'm a woman or I probably only won this because I come from an underrepresented group. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I'll take it. And like PSA to anyone who's feeling that you won that award because you deserved it. And like yeah. the, the fact of the matter is there are more people that deserve these awards than there are awards to give. and You've just got to own that, like, if you want something, you deserved it. Um, if you get accepted to an interview or you get accepted to a PhD program, you deserved it. 
and lean in and oh you guys yeah and tying back to this whole like philosophical discussion another part that really annoys me is people get hung up and we'll say wait a minute sally come on we know biologically there are differences between men and women that's not the issue here the issue is that the way our society is right now, we do not provide equal opportunities to all people, regardless of what their biology, ethnic background, racial background is. Like, that is the issue we're talking about. Yes. So take, so basically, in summary of what you just said, take your Google memo, James Demore bullshit, and shove it. <laughs> and, like, I, I would say among your friends, you know, is where these conversations happen. Like, well, like, so-and-so is from, you know, this so-and-so place. Like, maybe that's the only reason why she's even here. It's like, it's in those, like, casual over beers conversations that you have the biggest opportunity to be like, that's BS, and here's why. It's very toxic for you to be saying that, and here's why. Yeah, that is true. Ugh. Well, this has been so much fire. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there, John, this really was a really awesome conversation, and your your research and notes and everything you said was really fantastic and on point, so um, thank you. That's great, John. This has been great. Thanks, John, for joining us. Yeah, thanks, guys. It really was a lot of fun. All right, so I hope you enjoyed the You Do Belong in Science Travaganza. I really like that name. I'll say It's fun to say. Me too. You, belong in, you Do Belong in Science Travaganza. <laughs> so this has been an extravaganza, not of the usual sense, but I think it was very, these conversations were very important, and I think our listeners have learned a lot. Yeah, and so have we. Yeah. Um, so with that, we would love to take the time to thank all of the people that have been involved in this production. So um, starting off with our funders, Penn Bioengineering Department for helping to fund the production of these podcasts, to the Berkeley Student Tech Fund for specifically contributing to the You Do Belong in Science series. Um, to Oh, thanks also to the National Science Foundation, yes. um, Education and Human Resources Department, who recently featured this podcast on their Twitter page. Um, so hopefully, listener, if you found us on National Science Foundation, like, shout out to them. They also fund Kayla and my research, which is why, part of the reason why I feel comfortable taking time that I otherwise could be spending on lab and spending it on this podcast, because I know that these kinds of conversations are crucial to keeping women and underrepresented people in STEM feeling like they belong, because without representation of all parts of our population and our communities in STEM, we're not going to be doing the best work. Yeah. I mean, we have a whole episode on that, but... Just so you know. Just to summarize. <laughs> right. Um, and thank you also to our logo designer, Gustavo Villarreal, our mm-hmm. photographer, Kaz Lewis. Um, they're on Twitter at Wiki Rascals and on Instagram at Kaz Lewis. Um, thank you also to listeners and everyone who signed up for our mailing list and yes. everyone who signed up for stickers, doubleshelix.com slash stickers. Um, and follow us on Instagram at doubleshelixpodcast. Um, email us at doubleshelixpodcast at gmail.com. You Do Belong in Science series might be over, but our regular episodes are coming back, which, like we said, it's the same thing as the You Do Belong in Science series, but there's not uh, a poster about it. <laughs> <laughs> and we will, do ser- uh, we will do episodes that specifically relate to these topics that we will throw back to. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so many things coming. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. We'll probably have episodes every two or three weeks. 
Um, and we will miss you guys not talking to you every week, but you guys, yes. we're on Twitter. That means yes. we have more time for Twitter, so, I mean, and our research, but. <laughs> <laughs> At Double Shelix Pod on Twitter. Um, keeping it real. Um, and with that, you do belong in science. You do belong in science. Thank you so much for all of your support. Yes, thank you.